Hello there, welcome to episode 62 of Sitting Now. Uh, joining me back in his rightful throne um, are uh, my other co-host now. Now it's been, your, the co-host seat's been dominated for the last, by an, the usurper. I thought this was a different bottom crease in the cushion, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, what have you been up to? Where have you been? Um, I have been, well, I've been engaged in various ritual activities, but that is what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I guess a bunch of them need to be undisclosed for the time being. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, yes. We have a exciting project coming up from Mr. Black here. I should introduce you. You're actually, this is Ulysses Black in case you, you're new to the show. But uh, Hello. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so this week we have a returning guest and companion, um, Mr. Peter Gray and... Alcestis Dimesh. And yes, this week we are we're covering a topic. I keep saying this like almost every week at the moment because we're kind of going over these kind of grand figures of uh, of cult mythology a lot of the time or, <laughs> or kind of folklore. You know, we've had Spring Hill Jack and stuff. But obviously Babylon is something we really should have covered again probably quite a long time ago on City yeah now. and and in fact probably could do with covering again in uh, a couple of years time you know yeah. keep a, a refresher on it but um but uh these guys from scarlet imprint the publishing occult publishing company uh brought to the world the it brought to the 20 uh, 21st century the uh, subject of the goddess babylon um, and yeah, we're going to have a chat with them. Not so. We're going to talk a little bit, I guess, about Scarlet Imprint and publishing and and its role in uh, the modern occult world. But actually, I think we're going to try and get under the skin a little bit and actually just talk to them as people about their relationship with it all. Mm-hmm. And you know, and try and see there is this enormous occult publishing company that I say enormous within the occult world, enormous. Uh, and extremely, uh, you know, produce very fine books. But uh, this is an opportunity to actually find out a bit more about them as people and, you know, what drives them and what motivates them and what their relationship with that goddess Babylon so actually I think that's, is. That's kind of often overlooked, isn't it, when you're looking at these kind of occult subjects? Is like you people are so obsessed with the theory almost and not about the kind of doing when it comes to publishing i mean and you know uh, i i kind of like we were talking about this earlier i like to kind of find out about people's experiences and, yeah um and it, I, I i really hope that we'll get that today i think well, i think we will i mean we if we look at if we look across the sort of occult publishing spectrum so many occult books are written on this is how you do this thing this is the theory behind it and all of those books if they've been written by a practitioner we get very little of what the practitioner actually thinks themselves mm-hmm. uh, kenneth grant might be a, an example of someone who also writes about some of the crazy stuff that he got up to with his group. Um, but now we're going to look at, or listen to, speak to some people and find out what, what they're up to in the 21st century. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Let's go check that out now. Peter and Alcasis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for coming on again, Pete, at such short notice. <laughs> and, you know, uh, we didn't have you on that long ago, but uh, it's good to have you back. 
No, it's my pleasure, Ken. Always good to talk to you guys. And um, sitting now doing such a great job with the podcast, it's, it's, it's excellent to support it. Thank excellent. you, Ken and, and Ulysses. Well, um, I thought the best way to open up this show today would be to kind of rather than do the brief biography thing which we do you know on most of our shows is to actually just talk about how you guys kind of met and actually pete and alcasis i'd like to know would you talk a bit about kind of your backgrounds kind of esoterically speaking you know as in like how did you get into magic yeah. and how did you get into the occult that kind of thing um and maybe let's let's do a bit of a uh, sort of history deep dive as it were on scarlet imprint <laughs> Okay, well, if I, if I start, yeah, that that's makes more sense. probably easiest. Um, so I've been interested in the occult um, since I was at university. So I, I, was, a, I was a radical atheist as a, as a teenager. Um, and I was, also, um, I was also a revolutionary Marxist. Um, I was looking at uh, the ways that we could change the world. And I was also reading a lot of existentialist literature. And the existentialist literature led me into reading texts like um, Colin Wilson's uh, Occult, Occult and Mysteries. Um, and I was friends with uh, um, one of Colin Wilson's sons um, when I was a teenager. So there was a, a connection there. And while I was at university, I began to um, explore magic more and more as I became increasingly disillusioned with a materialist worldview. And I performed the, the kind of experiments that people do when they're getting into magic. And a friend of mine had bought a copy of the Thoth Tarot and she forced it on me because it frightened her so much. Um, and so I was kind of like, I was kind of forced into Crowley through, through this being thrust into my hands. And then I spent the next the next period of time, like diving into secondhand bookshops and picking up everything I could do and performing my own experiments. And gradually my, my worldview, my worldview changed. Um, also with the use of consciousness altering techniques, um, including, including, but not, not limited to psychedelic drugs, um, and spirit contact. And so my, my, um, my magical career, um, I, f I found that Crowley was perhaps the clearest writer out there in a, in a sea of largely absolute nonsense. Um, so I pursued diligently the work as laid out within Crowley's texts. Um, and then I worked with various individuals um, privately in small groups. Um, and I continued to pursue things. I was extremely briefly in the Ordo Templi Orientis, um, who I discovered were magically um incompetent and not worth uh, not worth any of my time obviously different camps may vary but my experience was extremely negative um, so i continued to follow my own path and work on the red goddess and the red goddess is a, a text that i wrote over a period of at least seven years um, and that's seven years of ritual work and the the culmination of the ritual work was the appearance of Alcestis um, in, in a similar way that you see um, when Crowley's going through the, the, the checklist with, um, with Rose in terms of the stele of revealing and she's coming out with, with consistently the correct, the correct signs unbidden and without, without knowing what she was being asked for, Alcestis provided all of the signs in, in, in quite remarkable ways. Obviously, 
that's the personal relationship that we have and i'm not i'm not putting any you know any grand cosmic significance on that but it must be understood that scarlet imprint is the result of at least a seven-year babylon working um, which has produced the most um the most successful modern magical publishing company in in the modern age so in terms of in terms of magical work um i'm always based on success success is by proof um, and the proof of the work that i've done is the the proof of scarlet imprint and the impetus that is given to the new magical revival and that's been helped by the many people the many practitioners and individuals who we've been fortunate enough to publish who've also driven the work forward and really transform the modern occult. So that's that's my brief version. Alcasis has a slightly different one. I have a very different story. My background is, I mean, I don't think I was ever not involved in the occult, even when I didn't even have a word for it, because I was a very strange child and I had very um, unworldly experience. Oh, well, they are worldly, but otherworldly experiences from a very young age. But I had a strong interest in the Tantric and Chinese and Southeast Asian traditions when I was at SOAS studying. And I became interested in these, practically a lot of the dance in the theater of Southeast Asia and Japan as well. And so I practiced this and was more interested in that side of things and not having any sense that there was Western magical tradition at all. But while I was uh, like when I had left university, I began dancing a uh, buto dance, and part of the exploration for that was also exploring everything about my body. So I would, or bodies in general. So I studied a lot of other traditions like shiatsu, or um, I was apprenticed to a dominatrix, and I would work to pay for my classes by assisting her things like that, just very wild and experimental, dancing with underground bands in London and just getting as much experience and throwing myself into this sort of erotic and creative and completely bohemian and, and un, untethered and unmoored life. But I had uh, a chance encounter with someone who I'd met in a previous life, who had been to Peru, I think, and or Brazil rather, no, he'd been to Brazil and had experienced ayahuasca there. And so he brought me into the Santo Daime church in the UK and I started drinking ayahuasca. Two weeks after I had a 10, 10 day working, um, which was uh, close to Zena in Cornwall, which was, I think 2005, the summer of 2005, two weeks after that, which was a, a huge experience. I had a vision while I was meditating in a friend's garden and the vision was of a woman who kept transforming her appearance in front of me, who gave me lots of, she, she told me so many things that would happen and nothing like this had ever happened to me quite like this before. I had done work with um, a lot of meditation with um, a dakini called Kurukula and that was quite freeform but it was more in line with tantric visions. This was quite different. It was a singular figure who 
just kept transforming her appearance. And I didn't know who she was, but she was very, very explicit in what she told me. <laughs> and then sometime after that, I was introduced in another kind of strange twist to Peter by a friend of his who I'd met at a party of someone who had been to the ayahuasca sessions with me. I met Peter and everything just kind of exploded. And um, that was around the time that you, you remember, we, well, we were just talking now about the performance with Foolish People. That was about the same time that I was also just becoming introduced to Western, the Western occult and the sort of magical scene, which I didn't know existed, but through my interest in dance, I had looked, and, and in magical dance, such as you find in the traditions of Southeast Asia, Japan, India, um, I was interested to work magically with dance, and I'd been experimenting with this on my own. And then I found an advert by a company called Foolish People, who were looking for actors and performers for a, a, a thing they were putting on, a play by John Harrigan. So I, I went along for an audition and I got cast as Kissika Lilla, who is a form of Lilith. <laughs> and I was meeting Peter at exactly the same time that I was rehearsing this, and this was being rehearsed in Treadwells when it was in um, Covent Garden. So I picked up, I would look at books there, and I picked up the vision and the voice, and Peter recommended to me the Book of Lies. So I was sort of starting to explore the Western tradition and doing this um, magical like performance art play and kind of carrying on with my own explorations in magical body and and sort of more shamanic freeform techniques that I was developing through my use of through through Bhutto and through the other the practical modalities that I was also working with sort of energy work qigong or nudan and so on that I was working with to build energy and transforming that through a performance process. So I came in at a very strange angle through a lot of like magical entanglements and just crashed into Peter and thought, ah, oh, who do you think you are? You know, you're a, you say you're a magician, I'm going to see about that. <laughs> and kind of declared, declared that I would destroy him. <laughs> I'm still trying. <laughs> so this is kind of my, my sort of crashing into it somehow. And then Scarlet Imprint started because he would give me pieces of the book he was working on to read. And I would read about the goddess Babylon. And I realized through this reading that the, the woman I had had a vision of was Babylon because it was so congruent, the things she had said to me and the things that was written in the Red Goddess. It was a lot to do with um, sex, sexuality, eros. So it was unmistakable, really. <laughs> So how and I'm still trying to <laughs> I'm still trying to work out so much of so much of this is still like in process uh, of, of becoming now. So how does like scholar imprint work with, with the two of you? Do you both um, I know you both write, but do you uh, kind of build the books together, I assume? Um, Peter does a lot of the editing and I do all of the design and the typography and, and some editing with Peter too when we get to the sort of final stages of a book. But Peter will do all the early editing work on a book and I will do the, the sort of the manifesting as, as a material object. I think we're very lucky, Ken, in that uh, 
our skills kind of dovetail. So I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to text. Um, and so I can, I can really help bring things out with writers. And Alcestis, with her artistic background, both in dance and choreography, giving her a sense of space, but also through painting and, you know, all of the other, um, all of the other things that, that she's done. She's, we've discovered that she's got a real gift for typography. Um, to, to such an extent, I mean, you know, she, she wouldn't say it, but when, when we, exactly. So when we talk to our fine binder, our fine binder has an extremely high, um, high, high um, opinion of the work that she's doing in terms of the fine book arts and the, the production of the production of these typographic objects. I, I consider myself very much a student and I'm in awe of many other typographers, but it's, it has been very nice that you believes in me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I mean, the books look fantastic. I mean, they, the two you sent me recently, um, The Red Goddess and The Brazen Vessel, I mean, they're, they're kind of beautiful books. They look amazing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, obviously, the Red Goddess is kind of. I, th I think when a lot of people think Scarlet Imprint, that's probably the first book they think of. Would you agree on that? Yeah, I think it is. Um, it depends. People come in through different. Like many of our writers have different followings and and uh, strong reputations in their own right. So I think I don't want Scarlet Imprint to be dominated by that because I like it to be a space that can hold a lot of different voices that mm. have unique experiences and perspectives. I don't want it to be like us, us, but I want to bring what the energies that Babylon has and, and, and can bring through this ability to materialize something in the world, something very, very powerful to infuse it with her force and her energy. I want to infuse that energy into the creation of other talismanic objects for writers whose work we really believe in so it's very much a labor of love and also community this um bringing together multiple voices many many voices because i don't think one person has the truth i think the many voices come together and create a, a much stronger Polyphony. A polyphony, yeah, and I think that's the that that's a much stronger way to to be in the world, to have community like mm. that. But it was the first book. It was the first book, and it did instigate everything. So yeah, yeah. There wouldn't be I guess that's what... without that. Yeah. And it's always, I mean, whenever I go to say Watkins in London, it's always I always see the Red Goddess. It's always that book that you just see. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's. Um... I wonder why that is. <laughs> <laughs> um. So going going back to um, what I, I'd quite like to know, what got you interested in doing a Babylon work in, uh, Pete? Um, Eros. It's, it's the same thing that drives everyone. I mean, I had a I had a a strong, curious sex drive since a very young age, and I've always been interested in pursuing human sexuality and the 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 sexual force and the creative force is are are absolutely intertwined you know whether we see that in examples of like the way that Crowley worked or the way that Parsons was able to meld his erotic force into putting man on the moon the the combination of these two things is 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 inseparable and fascinating so I've always been drawn to to the divine feminine and to this this path so so I'm also I'm also um 
I'm also interested in, in the work of liberation, the, work, the wider work of liberation. And, and sex is one of the most powerful ways that you can, you can engage in that. And it's one of the things that, that's been most knotted up, um, not simply in the West, but, but globally in terms of the way that you see Abrahamic religions. Um, my character, my character is, is, you know, both, both Saturnine and martial. So I'm interested in, in, in undoing and breaking things. And I'm interested in, in pursuing some of the more antinomian things simply because that's within my character. And my, my, my undoing of myself, my learning of myself, my doing my will has taken me in this direction. It's certainly not the work that I would propose that everyone should pursue, but I think there are tools within it which are more widely applicable to, to a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, we'll come back to that a bit later because there's something I want to talk to you about when it comes to people wanting to approach Babylon workings. But um, one thing I noticed, um, you know, I, I might be completely off, but one thing I seem to have noticed at least um, after following the release of the Red Goddess was I found that, especially within uh, kind of Thelemic magic and kind of, you know, Western esotericism, um, on places like even strange places where you wouldn't expect it, like social media, places like that, there seems to be a much a rising female presence like uh, taking the lead almost with this kind yeah. of stuff and do you feel that maybe the red goddess and other books like it are kind of um helping that to kind of happen um, yeah abs absolutely um when when i when i began it i mean i have a lot of friends in in the sort of witchcraft tradition so i'm you know i'm i'm used to being in in magical situations with like quite a quite a lot of women um and a lot of strong women have, have, you know, been important in my magical career. But in terms of in, in terms of the way that the magical scene looks now, certainly more and more women are finding their power and finding their voice within it. And and there are more there are more female students coming through. And it's it's hugely important that women come and ask the questions that only they can ask, mm -hmm. because there's there's a lot of there's still there's still a lot of patriarchal assumptions that need to be undone. There's still a lot of um, there's still a lot of sexism in, in, in the culture anyway. But we're in an age where women are coming to the ascendant, and I think that the that the rise of the rise of women and the, the liberation of women that you see exemplified in the Babylon Current, both when you see um, the kind of women who who Crowley was uh, associating with. Um, and also the kind of women like Marjorie Cameron, who, who Parsons was associating with. This, this, this stream of strong, independent female artistic practitioners is, is growing and growing. And that, I think that's something that, that, that the Red Goddess has helped open up. Um, and I think that continues to be opened up as more and more women find their voices. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, uh, Ulysses and I often talk about kind of traditional you know going back to Crowley and more traditional magical writings women always feel more like a an instrument than a participant if that makes sense like they always feel they almost have I mean should we use the term we use I don't know <laughs> but you know yeah women is, women is treated within um within thalamic magic very often as a receptacle for the golden sperm um, a and, with a pulse. Have, and there's no there's no volition um, I mean, there is there is a longer, nuanced conversation to have around around sex magic and Crowley sex magic there, but um, but essentially, yes, women 
women have been seen as an accessory um, and women to have facilitate been facilitate the work of the, the majors, but not as practitioners or magicians in their own right. Mm. Yeah. And that doesn't, it, it, in Crowley's system, from as I understand it, and that's largely through my discussions and work with Peter, it doesn't attribute any creative capacity or force to a woman individually as herself. She, she needs a man in order to uh, be something in this world magically, which is obviously completely insane. And it's based on completely false assumptions about male and female psychology and physiology and sexuality and so on. So I think, although Crowley himself was groundbreaking in many ways and, and absolutely radical for his time, there are also so many limitations in terms of how much further we've come since then and how much further we've still got to go. Um, so that you can't see Crowley as the last word in this, but really as one of the first words in this discovery of the potential of, of sex and of eros as, um, as powers and as, as imaginal spaces with which to engage with this work. Mm. And do you think, um, I mean, obviously we have this like massive catalogue of kind of ritual and, uh, um, you know, magical writing. Do you feel maybe we should be tearing those up and writing new rituals or should we be adapting old rituals and old practices what, what's your kind of take on that it, i don't think i think you should take a conservative perspective and not destroy things that you don't understand and i think there is sometimes a temptation to destroy things or before them. or dismiss them before you actually understand how things work um and i think that's that's one of the problems that we see in the decentralized world with the breakdown of the orders is that people are more tempted to, um, to just go on a shopping spree in the spiritual supermarket, but not really quite understand the history of the ingredients or how things go together. And there, yeah. there is a reason for, for many of the things that have been done. So certainly, yes, there are new, there is new work to be done. There are new rituals that are required. I mean, from my perspective, and this is looking at the Western tradition, not just Crowley, but before Crowley, the whole um, magical, Solomonic, Goetic traditions. There's no female practice written particularly. There's the unwritten witchcraft, but there is no like magical practice that's specifically female or, or for oriented around women's physiology, psychology, psyche, and so on. And so my approach to doing ritual has been to be completely um, creative and, and, and to create my own from scratch, which I do through art and through uh, my own process, engaging both with my body and with the, the deeper mythologies that underlie the force that is Babylon. And I think in a way, as a woman, that's given me a kind of freedom that men already have systems that are designed around and for and by them and as a woman those don't exist for me so I had to create my own and that suited me temperamentally too because I'm very um independent or <laughs> and creative I don't I'm not very good at following somebody else anyway I'm sort of more of an instigator than a, a follower but I've I've appreciated that freedom, although it took me some time to really understand how 
that related to what everybody else was doing in magic. So I often found myself outside, and I, I still am outside very much the mainstream discourse on magic because I've taken a very independent line in that because that was the only way I could find to do magic as a woman and through my own body and experience. And I think there's a different challenge for men as for women now coming to this new understanding between uh, working together and also independently how we take things forward. But certainly as a woman, I find that there's actually so little behind in terms of what's been done um, specifically by women compared to what men have inherited in terms of tradition that I, I think that there are traps and there are advantages to both. It's just sort of interesting to see the, the practitioners dealing with that now and how that's, I hope we're contributing to the ability of people to recognize that there are other paths through this work than just that the ritual sort of already been written and performed, which often are based in kind of erroneous worldviews and, and understandings of things, especially sex magic, especially thalemic sex magic, which is, you know, largely where it's come from. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, one, one way to think about it, Ken, um, that, that I find useful is, is to draw a parallel with the martial arts. So it can be extremely, extremely useful to study a traditional martial art, you know, with, you know, any of the Japanese traditional martial arts of like an internal beauty and like um, significant skills and, and, and life lessons that people can learn from them. However, they may not be the most effective weapons in a street fight. So I think that people should train traditionally, but then they should look at the world around them and they should perhaps look at more of a mixed martial arts approach and see if they can take the best things from other systems once they have a grounding in one. But if you don't have that initial grounding, then you just end up with a mess. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So let's... Let's actually have a look at, at, at our Lady Babylon um, and sort of uh, let's, let's historically look at her. I think that's the probably the best way to approach this. Um, obviously, when most people think of like the kind of origin of Babylon, a lot of them look to revelations. But actually, uh, especially in the Red Goddess, you talk to this, um, she appears much earlier than that. Yeah. Um, revelation is such a, uh, such a difficult text because it's... It contains within it the understanding that you have a deep exegetical understanding of the 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 entire the entire canon of you know what became the Bible. So, Revelation itself is based on texts like Daniel. It's based on um, it's based on Ezekiel. You know, there's there's a huge amount of an Enoch. There are, there are a huge amount of embedded texts within Revelation itself, and then Revelation itself is written. In, in a code which is talking about the events which are occurring in the time that John finds himself um, with the, the Christian pers persecution going on, with the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. And so he's created a, um, a massively complex text. Revelation itself is like a, a cup that all of these traditions have flowed into. So revelation is almost the... Uh, like the cup of Babylon itself, that it contains so much and so much more than it appears to contain. You have also 
um, the idea in the Hall of Revelation is of the great goddess, whether that's Kibeli or uh, Dea Roma, and also behind her, Inanna Ishtar, of course, because she was huge. She was one of the most important goddesses, even into the Hellenistic period. And so these understandings that all these figures of, that all these figures of the great goddess are contained in the figure of the Hall of Revelation, as well as the various cultures that are mixing in this time, whether that's um, the Jewish, the early Christian, and um, Hellenistic, Gnostic, it's it's all there. So it's a kind of... It's a holographic text. Yeah. So um, the, there's, you're mentioning the the other goddesses, the, the sort of uh, proto-Babylon or, you know, other manifestations of sort of archetypal elements. But there's also, uh, you know, certainly in, in for Crowley, there was an awful lot of syncretism where, mm. you know, you sort of make parallels between lots of things and effectively say, these are all the same things masquerading under different names, you know, as we see most clearly perhaps with Greek and Roman gods. But yeah. when when it comes to Babylon and when it comes to our mo maybe our kind of post-colonial way of looking at things, there's an element of not all goddesses are Babylon. And yes. just because something says share similar traits, they're not necessarily the same thing. So I wonder if you could kind of unpack slightly the distinctions between when you see some goddesses and currents aligning to be sort of to be hinting at a greater unity and other times when you go, that's clearly a goddess that is I don't know, a goddess of the sea or something that may not have that same correlation. I think, I think one of the key things to do is to start with name. I mean, name is always important. So when you look at Revelation, you know, Revelation names her as Babylon. So the first port of call is to return to Babylon in order to find out who this goddess is, because the the wound in the in the in the Jewish psyche occurred with well one of the wounds occurred with the captivity in babylon and the exposure to the exposure to these this particular complex of near eastern goddesses um, the the love goddesses and particularly we're looking at we're looking at inanna and ishtar um, as being the, the the erotic energy and force that is circulating out of this like ancient Uruk originally. So with the, in terms of the things that you're looking for, we, you're looking at like, you're looking at this, this collision of love and war and agency and, and sex and sex and the overturning of laws and the, the breaking of boundaries that you see very much with these, with, with this goddess. So one of the reasons I, I wrote the Red Goddess is because there was a lot of loose talk, as you say. The the kind of the the syncretism that you see in Crowley has led people to to identify yeah. any goddess they can think of with Babylon, and it's it's manifestly false. I still see some Thelemites today um, trying to make a case that that Babylon is Babylon is Hathor or Babylon is Isis, and part of the problem. Um, Part of the problem and the reason for this is that Crowley was um, Crowley was in an age which 
was engaged in kind of rampant Egyptosophy. It was, it was excited by the discoveries that were happening in Egypt. And so he dressed up a lot of his revelations, particularly if we look at Libra al Legis, the Book of the Law in 1904. Um, Crowley doesn't have Babylon in that text at all. Um, not apparently, but he hides her behind the Egyptian goddess Nuit. Now, there is, there is no way on, there is no sane way you can make that equivalence if you have an understanding of Egyptology. None at all. Um, and, and Crowley's, Crowley's fans who try to make sense of Crowley's like use of Egyptian um, Egyptian deities are really falling over their really falling over their feet when they try to do so. Um, so they try to drag in Nuit, and then because Nuit is described in terms of Isis, they try to drag in ideas of Isis, and and this is all tosh. Um, my personal approach, my personal approach is to go to the cortex, and the cortex I go to. Um, First of all, primarily is revelation. And from revelation, I then go back, well, revelation and then and then D and then Parsons, but and D, D Crowley and Parsons. But for the goddesses, for the goddesses, I'm looking at the ancient, ancient Near East. And I think there are there are some phenomenal lessons to be learned by, by going back and looking at Inanna and Ishtar and looking at the, the material that comes out of that and the way that that flows through the near through the ancient Near East and the way that, that that impacts on all the goddesses you find in, in the region. I found a lot of, um, because there are no mythic stories, there are no myths or, or, or tales within Crowley for the gods, they're just almost symbols that stand for ideas. They're very unfleshed in so many ways, despite being so beautifully evoked in some of his texts, such as the vision and the voice. But I found that going back to the stories and the myths of Inanna Ishtar, and more even the language, like the words of the, the priestess and her duana, really evoke a force that is recognizable whenever she appears. So although I don't think Babylon is Ishtar or Babylon is Inanna. I think there's one force that comes through. It's and is now a very distinctly atomic force in this age. The, 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 the goddess that is being born now as Babylon that is coming and emerging, coming into being now, is the same force, but renewed, endlessly renewed, as though she keeps arriving in new skin and and being present in different times and I find that there's still so much of that energy especially in the the ancient texts um, especially in, in Hedwana's words that evoke this goddess who has who is just such a her force of nature she's a storm she is the venom upon the land she is she is sex she is everything in 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 jouissance, in, in pure rising up. And the words that evoke her are so much more evocative than what you get in later ideas. She's, I, I don't really think of goddess or god as 
beings as such. For me, it's a force that exists that captures our imaginations, our eros, and molds it and takes, takes forms that we respond to. So as phantasms, that uh, it's an energy that is taking form, a force and an energy that is taking form as a particular phantasm or image or, or persona, mask or something and can impact you into the very depths of your flesh, but also have this something that completely, mm, that is completely beyond that, because it's always coming from the center of the universe. It's always coming from this, this schism, this divide between um, what we are. We are like male and female. So Babylon is talked of as a goddess and I, I understand why she's perceived in this feminine sense because all life emerges from the woman but for me the energy of babylon is easily as uh, accessible to a male as a female and that it's really so much that the way it affects us is through eros and through the erotic and through through our imaginal and this um this very uh, plastic and, and malleable realm in which we are continually um, playing with and the play of these forces with us. So especially the, the, the stories of Inanna Ishtar evoke that for me, because when you read them and you, you listen to them, uh, there are readings you can hear online, the original um, Akkadian and so on, Sumerian. They're very hypnotic and the, the, the words get through the meaning and, and also just the sound of the uh, early languages really evoke something quite quite deep and atavistic inside you. And it's um, it goes beyond where I think Crowley was. And it goes, it's, uh, <laughs> it's very, very deep. I don't know what else to say about that, but I think it's, it's so recognizable that almost the name doesn't matter. Babylon herself is just, the name that attaches her to the land where she first emerged in the historical record. Great. I was actually going to ask if we could just clarify for the sake of people that aren't familiar with the term, the distinction between Babylon and Babylon, if there is one. Oh. Certainly. Um, but I didn't really want to interrupt what you were saying because uh, there was some really great stuff in there that I still actually want to pick up on. But I wonder if we could, going back to that sort of Inanna Ishtar and Babylon era, clarify why do we call her babylon now and what why why are these two words different and and how do people make those distinctions yeah it's um it's a fairly it's a fairly straightforward thing so the the main reason why the main reason why we the main reason we find her spell b-a-b-a-l-o-n is is crowley's gematria which, because the name adds up to 150 and six, and 156 is amongst other things, uh, the multiple of 12 by 13, which is the rectification of the solar and the lunar years. So there's a tantric formulation in there in terms of the way that the sun and the moon are interacting within the name that's very important. We also, we also can look at D. So in D, D uses the spelling Babylon for wickedness. So it's an Enochian word as well. So Crowley, Crowley is drawing on D 
and he's performing an act of gematria in order to distinguish what he's talking about. Um, and this is, this is kind of typical of the period of occultism that, that he's working in. Uh, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a, a huge problem, um, but one difficulty is that it, it makes people sometimes mistake Babylon as being a subset of Thelemic magic, when in fact, Thelemic magic is a very small subset of the magic of Babylon. I find this as well, that Crowley created a system and a religion, a philosophy that is largely drawing from Egyptian ideas and gods. But then he takes from Revelation just two figures. They are the whole, the high lot of Revelation and the beast. And I find it very strange that there's no particular reason why those figures should fit into this new philosophy, but it's not clear anyway, is it? But I always felt that somehow Babylon being at the heart of this was just her being born into a new age. So the change in name, the shift in, in name actually gives her a new, a new birth, a new, uh, a new kind of coming into being. And uh, that is particularly for this age and the age which Crowley felt coming, the, the atomic age, the age where I think quite a revelatory age in so many ways for, <laughs> for, for many aspects, especially between, especially in terms of sex. If you think for how long that the relationship between the sex was, was, was very, very um, controlled. And since, especially the 60s, but even in Crowley's age, the, the Bohemians and the aristocrats around Crowley and the people on the margins were already trying to experiment with new ways of being, new ways of living, a new way of, of the sexes relating to each other. And that process has been ongoing since that period, particularly. I think it's also useful in that it indicates um, not, not a different entity, um, which is sometimes the mistaken reading that I see people make, but a different, a different exegesis. It shows by using the, by using this different spelling, this 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 shift in orthography. It makes you ask the question: Well, what you know? What is this about? And what it's about is is a, a rereading of Revelation in a new Gnostic or heretical fashion, which liberates this figure and transforms her role in a sociological sense, rather than leaving her as, um, as clearly coded for the demonic female. She becomes uh, a much more transformative figure. So there, there, is, there is value in it. Yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, moving forward in terms of, uh, I guess, Babylon, Babylon history, <laughs> um, I'd say the next real big kind of uh, appearance of Babylon would be uh, with John Dee. Um, yeah. could, could you talk to kind of Dee's interpretation of Babylon and like how he kind of uh, filtered him uh, through his, his oh, system? I wonder if I could just actually jump in there a moment, Ken, because if uh, if we do sort of see on the, the, the timeline landmark as D as the next kind of the, the, the presence where, where the word Babylon comes from and so forth, what was happening between 
the period <laughs> of ancient Babylon and Inanna Ishtar and this uh, Renaissance Enlightenment kind of era when when Babylon reappears. How how was the current or the the force of Babylon moving through? Um, I'm you know I'm as soon as I'm saying this I'm immediately seeing witchcraft and so forth. But I want to hear it from you guys yeah. um, as to what what the kind of unless you think it was a broken chain, but what the unbroken chain might have been that led us to the point of John D. And then Ken can carry on talking about John D. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think you're correct, witchcraft and so forth. Um, you're in a period where it's very difficult for there to be any records of non-standard um, no, non religious beliefs or readings surviving in a, in a useful fashion through that period. So it's also, you're also looking at, you're also looking at uh, an invention that we're casting back into the past if you're trying to fill those gaps. Right. Because we... We don't, we don't have the records of, of practitioners or thinkers that are outside the orthodoxy. Um, and we can, we, can, we can posit that that may be because they, they ended up on the pyre. Um, but that, that's also overwriting the, 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 the reality of many just, just poor women and- It's not just women, it's-, it's... The thing is, if sexuality is so controlled and, and people's lives are so difficult that they don't have the opportunity to explore those things, then it's not going to blossom. And the Renaissance did bring back this return of the pagan gods, in a way, even if it was quite a heavily Christianized way in most cases. But it brought back these ideas, smuggled it in. And so with D, you get a period which is opening up again to what was forbidden for so long because these texts were, these texts just weren't available. It was just revelation. It was just the Bible pretty much throughout Europe through those, those times. And in terms of the way people could live, I think there were just so many conditions on how that how lives could be lived. Even, uh, it's not just female sexuality that was constrained, it was male sexuality too. So you have an age in which, I mean, I don't, I don't really know enough about that. I think it's very interesting if you read, for example, um, Federici, although this is actually the early modern period, Silvia Federici, and, but it's very interesting in terms of her discussion of how bodies were so controlled in order to be uh, productive and to be functional to people who who owned those bodies or this controlled is, this is the author of uh, Caliban and the Witch Caliban, yes Caliban and the yeah, Witch great so um, although we have some like mm, questions over some of the way she presents the material it's very um, very Marxist materialist and she doesn't credit there being a spiritual component to any of the, the witchcraft material but still i think it gives it gives a sense of the, the material conditions that ordinary people lived through so perhaps extraordinary people could do something in their own privacy but this is not like something that is on the record yeah and again if you look at like 
later cases like say the Isabel Gaudi material that comes through that comes through by mistake you know those kind of like yeah those kind of those kind of testimonies were were really overwritten by the way in which cross-examinations were carried out everything was everything was brought down to the devil and was like was um was was made was made to fit purpose so you you wouldn't get you wouldn't get dramatic other visions of like the world coming through but sexuality itself is so demonized so with all the witchcraft um, and the demonologist material it was so much of it putting a sense of of fear and and forbidding any exploration of sexuality anything that wasn't you know completely you have sex in order to have children and that's it and there's no pleasure there so this uh, this sense and it, it's still there in christianity now it's not like it's completely gone there is so much taboo around the body and pleasure and i think that it's irrepressible in one sense and so there isn't it's not that these things can be broken and uh, i don't see it in a completely linear way i think this is a force that is in the body all the time and it can always emerge when it's given an opportunity to so even if it doesn't make the historical record it's still a presence within people. Um, so does that mean then that we might think that its legacy within the historical record hmm. is uh, we're seeing that with John Dee, a wealthy, you know, aristocratic, was he aristocratic? No, just a member of the court, um, um, kind yeah. of a man of privilege being able to uh, engage in... Uh, ostensibly heretical activities of truck with angels rather than mediated by a priest he on, wouldn't on his have behalf. perceived it as heretical though i mean he certainly wouldn't have assumed that he was dealing with the whore of babylon for sure he would have been he would have been horrified at the idea that he was doing something that was unchristian and ungodly oh, God, i think that what's happening is that this energy this force is there and i think a lot of it has to do with edward kelly and i think a lot of it has to do with the particular eros and chemistry around those four, particularly Kelly, Dee and their wives. So do we actually and, have much um, input or, or sort of secondary information about their wives in regards to how they fit into this sort of four-part equation between these two husband and wife pairings? Or do we just really know anything from Dee and Kelly's potentially at odd sort of positions? Um. My, my understanding is we only have we only have the male record we only have we only have Dean Kelly. But from what Dee wrote, his wife wasn't too keen on the the um, cross. How would you say? <laughs> okay, so we got yeah, so, we have we have we, at least we have then Dee saying mentioning something about his uh, wife's opinion on the matter. Yeah, she wasn't happy about it, but I think she submitted to his. Yeah, I think one of the one of the problems, Ulysses, is that when people think about D and the angelic material, they they make a whole they make a whole make a series of errors. One is they talk about like the Enochian universe as if it exists in some parallel dimension and is separate to the universe. And the second thing is they they mistake D for being a magician when D is in fact a a Christian um, through and through. Like, like, like shot through, and the the magic that they're performing, 
they believe to be entirely lawful Christian magic, and they, they're working within the parameters of the Christian universe. Although the problem for them is that they get they get increasingly strange material coming through as a result of Kelly's scrying, um, leading up ultimately to the appearance of the Daughter of Fortitude and the, the cross-matching, the, the, the sexual um, wife-swapping that occurs between the two of them. Um, it's, it's, a very, it's a very vexed and complicated subject, the D material. Um, but there is a sense, as we talked previously about, about rupture and breaking through and the new occurring and new dispensations, there's very much a sense of, of those, those threads Dee actually understood, I, I think Dee understood as a Christian that in order for there to become a new covenant with God, which was what he was trying to accomplish, that they would have to transgress in order to establish that new covenant. So he was willing to go to these further reaches of what was considered Christian or permissible within a Christian framework because he was actually trying to establish a new and perfected Christianity and a new and perfected nature. But it wasn't at any time meant to be unchristian it was always godly yeah i mean the the clincher was when when he was well, well when they were told by the angels you know there is nothing unlawful which is lawful unto god um we, which is you know one of those one of those like great terrifying spiritual truths which which pushed them over the edge into engaging in this experiment and breaking the 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 group. Yeah, and, and, and ultimately sundering, sundering the entire operation. Did, so did, uh, did D get to a point where he, uh, having generated this material with Ed Kelly, that he ultimately rejected it and went, I'm having none of this, this is taking me, or was he, was he persuaded by it? Obviously, he was persuaded in, in, in parts of his life in order to actually engage in these activities. Well, I think did, he was a true believer. Uh, I think he was a true believer, and he kept pursuing. He kept pursuing the material like long after, long after Kelly had left, with with less and less success. Um, but but he certainly he certainly, continued, he, he certainly continued continued to pursue it. Um, and and was he was, tapping into the the Babylon aspect of no absolutely sort of not right no no so sort of Babylon sort of made makes a sort of guest appearance in his yeah. working from his point of view and then uh, he carries on yeah. with the rest of his godly duty and there's always the figure of madimi who runs through their engagements with the angels and who seems to transgress between the spirit world and their world frequently can you, is... can you say who a bit more about who this madimi. figure is madimi she appears first as a young girl and she sort of grows up and, and sort of becomes increasingly sexual and she's the one who talks about her as she sort of reaches adolescence and her, her sort of coming of age and she is the one who talks about her mother coming and that's the figure we associate with um, the, the, the woman who is um, described as the daughter of fortitude but Madimi herself is very like has elements of this she's coquettish she's she's all kinds of trouble for them as a spirit what would you say about and again you see you see kind of like this tripartite kind of babylon figure in crowley's vision and the voice as well so you know there's the there's the daughter figure who appears in the ethos as well in one of the visions so 
And there's this strange um, resonance and relationship between mother and daughter, which you see even like throughout, even in, in life, in, in, in humans, that the daughter is the mother and the mother, they're, they're, they're alike, they're so alike that they're the same. So you can see that, that the mother is renewed through the daughter. And that creates a strange energy because the, the sort of this erotic nature is always being reborn again and again. So uh, this is why I can't understand that there needs to be a linearity or, or a, an unbroken connection because it's continually welling up inside you as well. The, the connection, the erotic force is continually able to erupt into your life. And that's, that's part of the nature of Babylon. And I see that with the way that she, either the figure of Medimi or the, the figure of the daughter of fortitude erupts into the, the scrying sessions of Dee and Kelly. It can't be kept out. Interesting. Babylon does seem to appear um, at these kind of nexus points throughout history as well, which is kind of interesting. Yes. And um, I mean, the obvious next one to talk about would be Jack Parsons, who we spoke up, you know, about at length the last time we had you on, Peter. Um, but can we talk a little bit about because I think this is kind of interesting because um, I think it might have had an influence or some kind of fuel to Jack Parsons' Babylon working. It's Kenneth Grant's. Um, interpretation of Babylon which seems to be kind of broken by hi historical inaccuracy but uh, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> it um I mean he's a he's a you know he's a great read but I'm not sure how how you know how much you should stock you should put into some of his uh his history <laughs> let's put it that way but yeah, uh, what yeah, kind yeah. of uh influence did Kenneth Grant would you say have on the kind of the the sort of historical lineage of Babylon Grant's a curious one. Um, Grant's very curious. Um, Grant knew Crowley um, when Crowley was an old man and Grant was, Grant was like a, a fresh-faced boy. So um, Grant was 20 when he was serving as Crowley's um, secretary. Um, so he was, he, was, he was really wet behind the ears. The old master was kind of like, like on the way out, um, and was also quite quite frustrated at the way that Grant um, responded to the material and the teachings that he was giving him. Um, so Grant produces a very a very strange version of something which I don't think you can call Thelema in any useful way, um, and I don't think he says anything useful about Babylon either because the way that um, the way that it has to go through Grant's crazy um, personal mythology scrambles anything that might be useful. However, what Grant does is Grant keys into the idea of the Scarlet Woman as the the as the the tantric Suvisini, the, um, the, the woman who produces the transformative Carlos that the male magician um, and, and potentially her use for magical transformation. So Grant rewrites the Crowley script. So Crowley's universe is um, entirely um, spermonostic. So the creative principle in Crowley is the sperm and woman is nothing but um, 
woman does not have a soul in Crowley, Crowley for start, um, if, you, if you read Libra Aleph. Um, and her, her only hope is to be reincarnated as a man in her next incarnation. This is like, you know, one of the major problems with Crowley. His, his, his view of women is, is pretty abominable in some ways. There are, other, there are other parts you can quote which make, make it sound a lot better. So Crowley was all about sperm in terms of sex magic. And Grant flips this on its head. And he makes it all about the Kalas. He makes it all about the sexual emanations of the, of the trained priestess. Um, now, Grant got this idea from a guy called David Kerwin. Um, and David Kerwin was a tantric initiate who um, had contacted Crowley, again, late in Crowley's life. And Kerwin had a, um, a tantric teaching which he'd received from a group in India, which, um, which was essentially um, a, a, a commentary on a, on, a, on a single text. And this talked about the importance of the Kalas, and he argued with Crowley about, about the, he argued with Crowley about this because this group had also read some of Crowley's writings and when, were, were negatively, negatively commenting on it at the time. Um, so Kerwin, Kerwin took this female-centered Carla material and Crowley, Crowley introduced him to a young Kenneth Grant because Crowley needed Kerwin to hand over the money to make him a ninth degree in order to, um, in order to finance Crowley in his old age. So Kerwin, Kerwin didn't believe that the OTO or the AA or any of Crowley's things were anything other than, other than like words written on paper. He didn't think there were any people. He thought it was just a shell game. And so in order to prove that there was a viable, a viable group, Crowley, Crowley introduced Kerwin to Grant. And Kerwin introduced Grant to this tantric teaching on the importance of the Kalas. And Grant ran with it. And Grant really ran with that. Um, and that's, again, like, if, if we're talking about initiation, this is, this is a pretty slim piece of information that Kerwin has handed over, that Kerwin has got through a correspondence course from, from people he's never met. Not and exactly initiated, it's a correspondence and course. He hasn't, he hasn't had Shakti Pat, he hasn't actually been communicated in any methodology. He doesn't seem to be a practitioner of any kind. There's no material or nothing on the record that suggests he knows what to do and in fact there's quite, more the, opposite. Ever, quite the opposite there are things that um happened that suggest he was taken advantage of yeah there's a there's a there's a famous bit where where um where crowley sends him off to i think to see uh, john simmons to to buy like uh, to, juice. to buy some Suvacini juice to, to buy some female um elixir female elixir and, and uh and uh yeah, and he, he believes it, he goes along there and asks for it, and the guy just laughs at him, like, are you joking? <laughs> so, so Kerman gives Grant this. Now, the positive thing about Grant is that Grant addresses the complete absence or denigration of the female principle within Thelemic magic, and he does so at a time when feminism and witchcraft in, in England in particular... And in America. Well, and, yeah but I'm, I'm yeah. talking about the English experience, really are, are taking off in a big, big way. So my interest, like, my interest in, in the grant material is that, is that he makes the equal and opposite error to Crowley. So Crowley simply spermonostic, 
and Grant is just all about the Carlos. And Grant just like Grant really like goes off the deep end with with all of his material in a way which I think is is deeply unhelpful for students, but can be a, evocative. A, an evocative, great fun read for people who can keep their feet on the ground. So the uh, subject of the Carlas, which come up uh, in a lot of Grant's works, is, yeah. uh, and you're saying through Kerwin, is yeah. this kind of erroneous material or is this uh, misunderstood sort of Indo-Asian Indo material and in which case is there a more direct source that we can look at for that type of material or is that actually uh just entirely separate to grant's um championing of uh the sort of female energy as a in a broader sense yeah i think when you try to piece together a, um, a practice or any kind of sense out of the typhonian trilogies as to regarding the actual practice of sex magic grant is next to useless um whether whether he knew anything or not again like I'm looking at the source from of Kerwin, and I'm I'm doubtful that he has anything really beyond beyond inspiration from that. Um, particularly given the way that he responds to Crowley's material um, and the the wild way that he riffs with that, I imagine he also riffed wildly with Kerwin's material and similarly. But certainly, you know, there is there is the option, there is the option of going of just Going back to going back to the roots and, and pursuing tantra, um, but, but that's not the lemur. As Crowley, that's not the lemur, as Crowley Crowley points out. Okay, you know, Crowley, from, from a Crowley's Babylon very clear. Sense. From, yeah. In a Babylon sense, I think I think what you what you can take from Grant is you can say that that the female principle has been absolutely overlooked, like culturally, magically, and and Grant kind of helps to helps to kind of point things in a more useful direction. I but think I one of the interesting things about Grant is that he does attribute a much more active role to the woman through the, the office of the Scarlet Woman. And this in itself harks back even to the earliest appearances of this force, this divine force, Babylon, as in Anna Ishtar, when you have the figure, um, both goddess Inanna and Ishtar and her priestess are described as Nugig. So the word Nugig is translated usually as hierodule and is kind of the equivalent to Scarlet Woman in the sense that both Babylon as a goddess, but also her, her earthly office as a priestess is described as a Scarlet Woman. So you have this kind of equivalence where both Nugig and Scarlet Woman refer to goddess and person at the same time, both to the sort of divine energy and principle and to the human incarnation. So in that sense, um, the, the image of the Scarlet Woman never had that kind of completeness in Crowley, but in Grant it starts to get that sense of coming into prominence and coming into a much clearer outline about there is a potential role for women through this, that both is um, a challenge, uh, a challenge that the, the goddess or the force herself throws out and puts upon, upon women to fulfill or to explore. But also there's the sense that it's an equivalence as well, that 
something earthly is something on earth is the thing it is so that it's not just something that uh, stays in Crowley I think he tries to keep Babylon so much above the abyss and so she remains almost as a potentiality that he can discard his scarlet women he's never actually um He's never actually ridden and controlled by them. He's always in control. With the figure of the Scarlet Woman in Grant, it seems quite different and quite opposite that the, the, the figure of the magician, the male magician, is sort of subservient to the, the female energy. Yeah, I'm going to push back. Okay, push back. Um, I'm going to push back on that just for the example of um, his relationship with Leah Hersig in the um, in Chefalu. Yeah. There was a there was certainly a strong period where where Leah appeared to be leading the dance in terms of like pushing him to greater and greater excesses. With their transgressions. With their transgressions. Yeah. Yeah. But then when he tired of her, he discarded yeah, her. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm this not, is I'm, kind of, yeah. there's no, she doesn't have an office for life in the way he has as the beast. No. Whereas I think in Grant, you get a sense that the woman can take on this role and identify both with the goddess and as her priestess in a way that hasn't, really it is very much part of this um period of the sexual revolution that okay now women have the vote women can have their own bank accounts women can uh start to explore their sexuality because there's the pill and it's all still very much in in some sort of kind of tumult and nothing is settled yet but there's a sense of a, a great world opening up and i think that crowley presages that but still tries to keep a lot of control over what this force actually mm. is, even though he's invoking it and, and definitely wants this, he invokes this particular woman. Um, yeah. But much stronger in Grant is the idea that she has her own will, and that isn't really a feature in Crowley's understanding of the Scarlet Woman. But for me, the difficulty with the Scarlet Woman is just that the words itself, the term itself is derogatory. So. Um, although you could say it's like reclaiming it and turning it into something that has power, I still think that there's so much tied up in terms of it's a label that's put on a woman. So yes, there's power in scarlet and power in red and power in this, but it's still so tied to a, a, a chastisement of this. This is my personal feeling. I have this is my personal history too, because my grandmother was labeled a scarlet woman. So I have like a strong reaction to it. I don't, I never heard it and felt it as a kind of form of power, but I always felt the reverberations of that effect that my grandmother was labeled a scarlet woman for the way she had lived and she had been excommunicated and so on and so on. So it had a reverberation that went down through generations in my family because of that term. So there is power in it, but I'm not sure that as a term itself, it is the one that brings the most strength to a woman's own identity as herself. I just find it a bit Victorian. Yeah, it's a bit Victorian too. <laughs> it's, it's dated, but um, this is why I never use this term in, in my own writings or work, because it, I just don't find it in any way useful now. I find it too much tied up with so many chastising and and dated conceptions of, of what it is to be a woman who has a sexual nature. Mm -hmm. So we've seen Crowley drawing ideas of Babylon and sort of changing them uh, from D rather and changing them. And then Grant sort of twisting them even in a completely different direction. 
but how did that kind of color the way jack parsons then engaged with babylon do you think do you, it, it, there must have been some kind of you know discoloration or you know coloration of what he was uh attempting to do you know via yeah at least through crowley i mean i'm not sure how well versed yeah. he was in grant at grant, that point. grant came after um, yeah. Parsons is yeah 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 um Parsons is, is and pre um, <laughs> <laughs> no but it's understandable i mean there, there is there was this kind of like gulf between the two places i mean um grant was writing um trying to get hold of more information about what what had happened with parsons and certainly um he was one of the early people to like champion the work of jack in terms of including material on parsons in the typhonian trilogies and also As i think it's, it's important to, to, yeah. to, to credit michael staley for the work that he did in starfire on on mm -hmm. on talking about parsons. on talking about parsons um you know there are really positive things about that i don't want people to feel that i'm just like like talking trash about about <laughs> Kenneth, I think Kenneth is still really important. I think he did some fascinating work, um, and I think that you know it would have been nice to hear more from Steffi um, mm. and what her, her experience was. But her art, her art speaks. So, mm. so I, I think she's also entitled to her silence. Yeah, true. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, so Parsons' experience with Babylon is obviously. I mean, we we discussed this. At quite yeah. length in the last but maybe we should touch on it i mean it, it it does seem like i was saying earlier that he's at this kind of nexus i mean it, i think babylon appears at these kind of nexus points but then i think jack parsons himself appeared right. at a nexus point didn't he where the kind of old and new kind of collide in a way um so you have the kind of the almost the old day on the if you can call it that crowley kind of era and then you have this new incoming renaissance of magic and it's he seems to be right at the kind of meeting point of those two things, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Jack is Jack is really at a at a catalytic moment, um, and he he takes full advantage of that. He really like he really epitomizes like the best aspects of Thelema in terms of his championing of the ideas of individual freedom, of liberty, of sexual liberation, of the the role of women, of you know obviously there are some problems with his nascent feminism but like his heart is absolutely 1000 percent in the right place and he's able to do something which no one else has been able to do in terms of he's brought through he's brought through a document which has which has the the, the sense like the the taste the feeling of the goddess in it it has this transformative power which is still able to transform people um so the work of jack is still you know there's still a lot more to unfold from that there's, there's still work of jack that hasn't been published only a little only a little bit only mm. a little only a little sitting in the archives it was his work was also cut short rather dramatically and before his time so you feel like it was necessary to pick up where he left in our age and keep going. So one thing that seems to be apparent with Babylon, but just in general, when you sort of do workings with deities or entities or whatever you want to call them, um, there seems to be a kind of infusion of their influence on um, 
on say performance or writing or how did you find when you worked with Babylon how did you find that it kind of infused with your kind of performances or writing or that kind of thing how did how was that kind of different to say other workings you've done or you know do you see what I mean um uh, for me all the workings that I have done performances relate to Babylon mm. so I couldn't describe it being with anything else uh mm -hmm. <laughs> so the problem, the problem Ken, is the, the, the once you embrace the the all blood into the cup formula, which is like the, the simple else. formula, there is nothing else. Right. So that there is no dividing line in the work we do. Um, even when something is apparently the subject is something else, but still, what's driving this is questions that she has given me, or that are are, are you know tearing at me that I have to answer and the answers are always in the body and through the body so I think this is also why there's um, a very strong aspect to Babylon that requires embodiment requires manifestation through the body that it, it demands to come into the world and that's how it transforms the world so I think uh, we have a moment now where more and more people are responding to this and and bringing these energies through into material into the material world and i think that's very distinctly part of this um birthing of a new age a new consciousness without trying to sound too new age i don't, I don't think it's all like um i don't think it's all positive either i think our energies are very very potentially dangerous in the sense that they are really hard to work with. The erotic energy is, and sexual energy is not a force that you can contain or control. There's no, and um, even having the relationship we do, it's completely one of freedom in the sense that we can't take anything for granted. We, we just give everything to this and I feel that somehow we're just here to keep doing that. It's very hard to explain. <laughs> so in terms but there's, of... an, there's an incarnate aspect to her and as well as a, a sort of an unspeakable or, or, or mystic aspect to her. It's very similar. I, I, I think about it similarly to um, in traditional, in, in, in sort of Christianity, there is a concept of the Antichrist. There are two Antichrists. So this is one of the references that Peter's book uh, refers back to the title, although it's about Parsons and Hubbard. It also refers to the Christian conception of there always being two Antichrists, so a mystical Antichrist and a, a great Antichrist who incarnates on earth. And I think in terms of Babylon as there being a Babylon mystica and also Babylon incarnata, which is multiple, that this force can emanate and, and manifest through many, many, many people, potentially infinite people uh, who open up to this energy and force and bring out things into the world through this energy. So in regards to this energy and this, this force, for people uh, exploring the esoteric realms and sort of engaging with uh, their body and with the sort of more insubstantial elements or not insubstantial mm. what do i mean you know the uh the non 
physical elements and the and the uh, and the, and the physical. What other sort of are there are there some keys or landmarks or something that you would sort of describe that would help people uh, navigate um, their experience and in order to know am I sort of engaging with a Babylonian current oh, or am I to, how to well, how to basically how to determine how to what, yeah 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 um there, uh, it's there's a very clear energetic signature it's um very very hot <laughs> and oh you see i've spoken to a few people that have written to us asking for help you will get very overwhelming and very strongly physical manifestations of this energy in your body through you and a uh, very strong electrical sense. It's, um, it feels like you're being reconstructed, not reconstructed, like, uh, like, like you're lighting up. You, you feel increasingly luminous. And this is my experience anyway, over working for, I guess, coming to 16 years, 16 years or so with this force, um, this particular. One. Um, an increasing luminosity, an increasing sense of space. The space is always, your sense of your body opens up and becomes absolutely uh, as if a landscape, but one which is in continual um, turmoil. I spoke a little bit about this when I was doing the work on um, Venus called Visitation, because I likened this sense of Babylon being in the body to also the, the surface of Venus as a planet, which is so volatile and so volcanic and so full of this, that it's so volcanic and energetic that the surface itself is continually reconfiguring. And I feel like Babylon has this imprinting on the body that this energy working through you will and does continually remake you and re like relight you. <laughs> um, and that there is a way of working with that uh, that is more controlled by gradually finding the way you... Oh, it's so hard to explain in words. For me, it's very, very intuitive, and I work very, very directly into the body, into the matter of it, through movement. So I would say movement is one of the, the key things, both how you would recognise her, and particular movements, and a particular quality, and a particular kind of passionate existence, and a particular way of seeing the world and experiencing the world rather but okay well take taking yeah. taking that as a no that's 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 great and thank you for uh wrangling with trying to put into words these these things that really do evade our sort of linguistic side do. so um so you're talking about some sort of signals there and i wonder then if we can roll it back a tiny bit again i'm just sort of i'm imagining uh people beginning to engage in uh, magical practices or or, or broader uh, and mm. so I'm wondering what's what sort of preparatory work might lead people not lead people might open up pathways for people to to tread down in order to approach these experiences uh -huh. um, personally my experience was quite spontaneous and the people that I've heard from had similarly spontaneous experiences but often they happen through 
an encounter where I think uh, very similar to what happened with Peter, that the combined energies, the, the sort of alchemy of two people, the chemistry is um, greater than the sum of its parts and creates a, a something, a sort of a strange sort of fusion. And that's been my experience. So I, I think there is an element of you can't prepare for it. It's like being struck by lightning. It's like the thing that just happens and you can't know it. But if you want to devote yourself to that, then I think it's very close to a kind of tantric practice. One has to live in a way in which one gives everything for this, in which one is open to everything. You're continually working on yourself. I mean, before I met Peter and for years, I was doing a lot of body work, a lot of work with um, energy, qigong, nidan and so on, nudan, and, and these and erotic practices, um, Chinese and especially, and through working with um, Glenn Morris or his guidance anyway. So I had a lot of energetic preparation for it and I had a lot of energy. If you're coming to it, I would work on clearing all the blockages in the body because she's going to do that. So I would work on absolute truth to oneself, absolute truth in one's dealings with the world, a kind of integrity because without those kind of safety nets almost it's very confusing you can get very lost in the turbulence one of the dangers of working with babylon is that the energy is so strong and what she does initially and for some time is to massively amplify and to blow up everything about everything that sort of she finds in you as though she's working through your body and through your psyche and amplifying and pushing and and breaking and testing things to the limit, testing you. And you can mistake this for Babylon. You can mistake yourself for this goddess. And it's more that she amplifies something about you before she totally breaks you. And that's going to come. And that breaking can be managed better by having a kind of radical honesty with the way one goes about everything one does in life, essentially, <laughs> in one's dealings with other people. In, in this, this degree of honesty really helped me anyway. It's been one of the, the key things that has kept me grounded throughout. So I would say also having a very um, rigorous grounding practice, if you're beginning to work with these energies, it's impossible to also maintain this 24 seven. It's so strong that you actually need to be able to put the energy into something. So you would need to have an altar and have um, a chalice, a statue, a figure, some objects that you can charge with the energy, that you can contain the energy so that you can keep it in a place where it's not always playing with you. If you allow it to continually work with you, it will um, burn you out. Um, when I was working on the the new edition of the red goddess last year and it was mm, like over christmas and new year it was a, a sustained period of a few weeks like three weeks to a month where i was in just i couldn't sleep i was working all the time when i wasn't working i was unable to rest i was in a, a completely erotically charged and 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 creatively fixated period and so sustained my health wasn't very good at the time either and this just made it worse so that 
essentially after I got that book and the, the, the two antichrists out, I just collapsed for the rest of the year. So even I, with my like experience and training, wasn't able to have such a sustained engagement with something like to bring something like this through all the time for like uh, like four weeks so there has to be a um, a process of habituating the body to these energies acclimatizing to it to, to to be able to contain the force so there has to be a way of grounding it and um the best thing is just to be in nature to go for walks in forests or on on ground and feel the earth under your feet like be in the sea you know give yourself to the elements and you know make that sacrifice into the cup into the greater cup that is her cup i think like that's the first guidance that i can think of no that's yeah. great that's great Keith. that's great thank you <laughs> well i think that's a great place to to end today what are you guys up to you know printing wise work wise what are you uh, what what are you bringing us next so we've just opened the pre-order on Gordon White's new book, Animistic, um, which I think has been our most successful pre-order ever. ever. Um, it's gone and, crazy. And I, I think our readers are entirely right. I think this is a, a very important book that Gordon's produced. We're then going to... The cover's then beautiful, gonna, by the way. Thank you. Yes, yeah, she's oh. she great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And then we're doing, um, then we're reissuing um, Jace Rankin's True Grimoire. We're doing a, um, an updated version of that because that's been actually out of print for a little while. Um, In hardback. Does an updated version have, mean the true oh, grimoire? The truer grimoire, yeah, <laughs> yeah. even truer. The even truer grimoire. <laughs> Sorry, Peter, this carry is the on. the true one. <laughs> um, and then we got the. the Holy Heretics, the Holy third Heretics. one in Frater Arcus, Holy Diamond Cycle. And we've got lots more stuff in the works, and we're both completely engaged in our own mad writings and, and projects and workings that is sort of... So it's furious. <laughs> we're being driven by the erotic energy of Babylon and pouring everything into the cup. Essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Delicious. Oh, that sounds great. Thanks so much, guys. That was, uh, it was really good to have you back on. <laughs> No, great to speak, guys. Really appreciate the time. Thank Cheers. you so much. Thanks for that. That was great. Thanks, guys. Oh, happy. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that was so difficult. So sorry that I'm a bit... No, no. <laughs> I tell you, the amount of times that I was... I... we are back that was a really really interesting interview actually uh, Pete, Peter's always great and uh, it's great to finally have Alkistis on as well so yeah, yeah. absolutely god there um there was a lot of material in there that's you know sometimes when when you're doing an interview and you you don't want sort of dead air where there nothing's being said and at the same time Sometimes you just got to sit and like ponder over some of the things that are being said, mm -hmm. uh, and there was there was a lot of meat mm. to uh, to that. Um, fantastic and 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 exciting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, like I said before, it's it's a it's a subject I've wanted to cover for quite a long time, and we I think we've definitely drilled the right people 
um, you know, and you know, clearly the right people to talk to about Babylon. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's kind of one of their things. Um, I guess, yeah, we'll we'll leave it at that. We're coming back next week with Andy Sharp, um, and we will, uh, we will. Um, what am I trying to say? Yeah, and we will be talking to him about his English heretic work. Um, don't forget to check us out on Instagram or, and on YouTube. Just use, look, look up the username Sitting Now S I W T I N G N O W on both. Um, we're on Facebook. Uh, to be fair, I need to start a new Facebook page for us because I have no idea what's happening with our old one. It doesn't. I don't understand how it works. So I need to kind of start a new one, learn it all refresh, and we'll start talking on Facebook as well. But uh, yeah, do do join us on there because we do try and interact with people whenever possible. Um, and anyway, yeah, we'll see you next week. It was great to uh, great to see you again. Are you going to be joining us again soon, do you think? Well, I'll have to fight the other co-host for yeah, this comfy well. chair, but otherwise we'll see. But um, I hope everyone uh, enjoyed that. We certainly did. There was plenty of, in any silent moments, the two of us just sitting there nodding and looking yeah. at each other a hell of a lot. But, yeah, yeah, uh, it was fantastic. So yeah. and I hope you were as well. Yeah, excellent. And um, we will see you next time. Bye.